In 2020, Kayla Haynes uh, recorded her daughter on a, a TikTok video. Her daughter was using this uh, tomato filter, but when the video begins, you hear a soundbite that's gone viral. It's a shame my daughter's not here because she would probably know it instantly. Uh, but you hear her daughter say, I'm a potato. And this background, I, for whatever reason, it's like caught on. Uh, it, that video or that soundbite has been used uh, in over 140,000 other videos. Just a little girl saying, I'm a potato. This morning, we're turning our attention to a new sermon series. which looks at seven statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. In each of these statements, Jesus says, I'm something, not a potato, but but some object that he says. And he follows this this motif. Now, Jesus doesn't say he's a potato, but he uses other objects that would have been familiar to his original hearers. And the formula that Jesus uses, this I am the the fill-in-the-blank, is meant to communicate his divine nature and his provision to his people. Now, these statements are all rooted in the name of God. In, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, we have Moses in the burning bush. He sees this burning bush, and God speaks to him, and Moses asks him his name, and he says Yahweh, or what is translated as I am. This was the name of God that the Hebrew people carried with them, the name that they sought to protect It was the form of the verb to be indicates God's self-sustaining nature that he just is. Jesus picked this formula. It might seem simple to us, like just to say I am or I am doing this, but the fact that he uses the same formula is communicating two things in these seven statements that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. It's a a clear self-attesting to his identity as God. There are times when Jesus uses this formula and the crowds pick up stones to hurl at them because this is blasphemy to them. But secondly, in each description, Jesus takes a motif from Jewish culture or tradition and he reinterprets it to apply to himself. So these sayings not only point to his divine nature but also reveal much about his character. Now, if you want to follow along with me and pull out Bibles, there's Bibles in the pews you can use, pull out your phone, Bible apps, and open to John chapter 6. Now, there's two somewhat lengthy passages that I want to read. So after the first one, keep it open so we can refer back to the second one. Now, while you are turning there, I want to give some background about what's happened in the narrative to this point. At the start of this chapter, there's a large crowd that has come to hear Jesus teach. They've ventured far from the town, and they've sat down with his disciples. And we're talking thousands of people. Now, the the text states 5,000 men, and this is the Greek word. There's two Greek words that are often translated men. One that means just men, and one that means uh, it's more meant to be gender neutral, uh, but it's usually translated as men, but as as a collection of men and women. And this term, this 5,000, uses the, the Greek word that really just meant men, And so as a result, if you have women and children present, we're talking like 10,000 people potentially in this site. So Jesus asks his disciple, Philip, where can we feed these folks? Where can we buy bread so that they can all eat? And Philip's like, dude, that's going to cost seven months salary. We don't have that kind of money in our coffers. 
So they find a boy who's brought a few loaves of bread and some fish. And if you have much exposure to the church, you probably know what comes next. Jesus blesses, you know, the bread, uh, breaks it, distributes it to the crowd. Everyone eats their fill and they collect just baskets of leftovers afterwards. So Jesus has just provided this miraculous food, supplied food with this one young boy's lunch. So that's the setting. Jesus departs that place, goes back to the town, and the crowds follow him along and follow with me as I read. So this is John chapter 6, 25 to 34. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we will see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread, always. Later on in the chapter, we see the city that Jesus is in. He's in Capernaum. In the beginning of the chapter, we see that the time that this takes place is Passover. Now, Passover is that powerful event when God decisively rescued the Hebrew people out from under the slave of, of, uh, uh, out from the thumb of slavery uh, of the Egyptians. He brought them into the wilderness towards the promised land. The reason this is, is significant because of what the people ate in between those two locations, between Egypt and the promised land. Six days a week, God provided manna, bread, if you will, to fall from heaven and cover the ground. The Hebrew people would collect this manna, this seed, and bake it into bread for themselves to eat. God miraculously, for decades, provided food for them in the desert, in a desolate place. Now, our event takes place during Passover, when the miraculous feeding of the nation of manna would have been fresh in their minds. And what does Jesus do? He goes to a rural place, distant from civilization, and miraculously provides food for them. This is why this is so significant. Because the Jewish belief was that God had these storehouses, these granaries or silos in heaven that were filled with food that he opened. And the food rained down for the Hebrew people during their wandering in the wilderness. And there was contemporary Jewish teaching that said that those same storehouses would be opened again with the arrival of the Messiah. Second Baruch, which is a, it's not part of our canon, it's not part of the Bible, but it was a Jewish writing, directly links the revealing of this anointed one, right? The anointed one is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, 
with this, it links it with this treasury being opened and people eating from it. So Jesus is operating in a way that's piquing their interest. He's following in line with their tradition. With the arrival, he's kind of signifying his arrival as the Messiah. That crowd that followed him to Capernaum, they had all tasted, they had all seen with their mouth and eyes that there was something special about this guy, Jesus. Now, if you look at verses 26 and 27 of his discourse, Jesus is trying to help them reorient their focus. He's trying to help lift them, lift the hearers above just a material understanding of the miracle. This isn't just about several loaves of bread and a few fish, but this is about a greater food that lasts forever. He's, he's encouraging them to stop being so fixated on this sign, but to instead direct their attention to what that sign is meant to point to. Right? Don't miss the giver because you're so focused on the gift. Now, as usual, the religious leaders are knuckleheads. In verse 30, they challenge Jesus again, <laughs> kind of like, what sign do you offer that we might believe in you? Basically, they want Jesus to prove that he is indeed the Messiah. Reopen those storehouses of heaven. I, I got to be like Jesus, like, what did I just do? But they say, Moses did it. Why can't you? But what they get wrong in this by citing Moses is that they, they miss out on the source of that provision. Jesus corrects them. It's not Moses who provided the manna in the wilderness. It was God. And then Jesus walks them through the logic of this encounter. If God is the one that you say is the source of heavenly bread, and if God has sent Jesus and has placed his seal upon upon him, as we see earlier in the text, then the truth is it's not any tangible bread you're waiting for. The truth is that you've been, what you've been waiting for is a person, the one who gives life to the world. Jesus is trying to get through to them that he is the manna from God's treasury that they've been waiting for. Keep that in mind. Let's go back to the text and read what comes next with the I am statement. Jesus, this is uh, John six thirty-five to 51. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I have said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the name, or excuse me, looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because, he's, because he said, I am the bread of life, or I am the bread that came down from heaven. Right? They don't like that. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. What Jesus was trying to allude to by logic earlier in our passage, he now says outright, he says, I am that living bread. Think back to the story of Jesus meeting with the Samaritan woman in the well, John chapter 4. His offer is similar. Staple of life, food, water that only he can offer. Something that's not temporary, but fills one up to not hunger nor thirst again. We see Jesus here expressing disappointment with the crowd. They, they don't believe him. You know, we saw that back in verse 29, that step one is putting their faith in Jesus. Believe in him. But this isn't blind faith, right? It's not pie-in-the-sky theology. They've all seen Jesus. Many of them experienced the miracle of the feeding of thousands. But they're not willing to come to Jesus and confess their hunger and thirst. They're not willing to acknowledge their utter dependence on what he can provide. And instead of an emotional connection, they just want him to do, they just want to do some more thought exercise. Let's run some more experiments. Test him some more. Verse 41 and following, the reaction of the crowd is to grumble. This is reminiscent of the murmuring of the Israelites against God in the wilderness. Hard hearts are difficult to break. We see what we want to see. These crowds keep appealing to the way Moses and God provided for their ancestors, but even their ancestors were stubborn, refusing to see the truth of God's provision beyond their own desires or discomfort. And so they grumble. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And they're like, isn't this just Jesus from the block? Like we know his parents. How does he say that he's this divine being? Right? We can't get away from this stumbling block that the religious leaders have. They're like, he's got some nerve that he's come down from heaven as God's chosen Messiah. But notice what Jesus does in response. He doesn't, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't list all his accolades. He doesn't kind of, you know, give that checklist or who's who of miracles that have been done. Instead, he just appeals to the authority that's been given to God. Jesus has come. He's been faithful to what God's tasked him with, that God's entrusted to him. The main point of this passage, the main point of this conversation, is that God is the one who is the supplier of the divine bread, and that whoever eats of this bread will live forever. But we see that this divine bread has come down in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. And as verse 50 shows us, and this is really important, this bread must be consumed. 
if you are starving, it is not good enough for you to be in close proximity to bread. You know, you can smell the bread, maybe you can feel the warmth that the bread gives off fresh out of the oven. Those things do nothing for you. Proximity alone doesn't do it. The only source of nourishment that you can take from the bread is if you put it in your mouth, chew, and swallow it. Jesus is the living bread. He says in 51 that he has given his flesh for the life of the world, and we must consume him. Now, this is what I want us to spend the remainder of our time considering. What does it mean for us to consume Jesus as the bread of life? Now, if you keep reading further in chapter 6, you see that once again, people misunderstand Jesus because they took it literally, as if they're required to participate in some form of like religious cannibalism. And, 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 you know, I'll acknowledge, Jesus says some really cryptic things in the text that follows about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And many, many that followed him kind of go away, say to themselves, this is hard teaching. I don't quite understand this. I'm going to head out. Even in the early age of the church, there was confusion to the meaning of this. Right? The, the Roman Empire was very antagonistic towards the church, towards believers. And there were three primary charges, excuse me, primary charges that the state had against the church. One of those charges was that they were cannibals because they regularly described eating the body and drinking the blood of their Savior as part of their worship services. One of the church fathers, Justin Martyr, wrote an apology, a defense to the Roman Empire, arguing, arguing why all three of these charges were just misunderstood, misunderstandings. And, and of course, this is the early uh, uh, Christian practice of communion, right? the sacrament of communion. Monthly, together, we here in this church celebrate and remember the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus through very tangible objects that are left behind, bread and, in our case, juice. Right? We eat the bread, we drink the juice, symbolizing that his body was broken and his, shed, or his blood was shed. Now, is communion what Jesus has in view here when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood to have life? Is this entire discourse in John chapter 6 merely meant to be a foreshadowing to the rite of communion? I don't think so. There are some scholars that suggest that, but I don't think so. Because communion is not able to deliver us. Communion doesn't save us. We can experience grace. We can experience the presence of God through those elements, but they are symbols. They themselves point to something greater. Participating in the Mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, that's not what brings salvation. It's a guidepost to salvation, but it alone does not provide deliverance. Now, the answer, of course, is going to have a degree of mystery to it. But how are we fed by God? How do we feast on Jesus? Now, I don't have a formula this morning. Christianity is not, you can't boil it down to just a bunch of formulas. But I want to make some observations that are crucial to us, I think, in this process. And the first thing that we see in this passage that the crowds were unwilling to do that I think it is of utmost importance that we do is we need to acknowledge our hunger 
we need to recognize that our need is desperate. This is really challenging in the 21st century, especially in America for most of us, because we live in an age of comfort. Oh my goodness, this is an age of opulence. We have so many things that we can feast upon. If we are still for too long, we may experience that spiritual ache of needing something more, something greater than ourselves to nourish us, but we quickly fill it with anything and everything else. 17th century mathematician and theologian Blaise Pascal put it this way. He said, and I quote, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? But that there was once in man a true happiness, all of which now remains is an empty print and trace. That there's this void in us. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. What Pascal is saying is that we try to satisfy this hunger in other ways. We seek to develop our image, providing a facade that we think if we are accepted by others, then we will truly have worth where we pour ourselves into our careers thinking that success equals worth, and then we might be satisfied. We seek to distract ourselves from the spiritual emptiness found in the path of addiction, drink, sex, Netflix. We distract ourselves by moving frenetically, jumping from one of our kids' activities to the next with no margin and no introspection. We use religious symbols and cling to them. If I just participate in the Eucharist, or if I just say this prayer X number of times, or listen to K-Love in my car, then I will be satisfied. We focus so much on those symbols and miss what they are meant to point to. So step one for us is to acknowledge our deep need and longing to have it satisfied by the living God alone. I believe that deep down, all of us have this pursuit, this this hunger for bread. We want to be spiritually nourished, but there's such cynicism, such lack of focus for us to overcome. We've got to acknowledge, though, that hunger, find that hunger. Step two, what does this practice look like practically? And in short, there is no, there's not a one-size-fits-all program. I think this is where the wisdom of the spiritual disciplines can help. And we're actually going to, at the beginning of the year, 2023, we're going to take a a look at a number of those spiritual disciplines. Because those, those disciplines are meant to engage our mind, our body, our spirit to attune them to the things of God. Just as an example, fasting, right? A practice of fasting. One of the purposes of fasting, right? So you don't, you don't eat a meal. Maybe you skipped a meal or fast for 24 hours. And in that time, you're hungry. The purpose of that, one of the purposes of that, is every time, right, you know what it is for your stomach to growl and have these hunger pangs. Every time you feel that, it's meant to be uh, the the, the reminder, all right, I'm going to go to God in prayer. And so it's taking something visceral, something physical, in order to direct and reorient your focus to God. That's just an example, foretaste. But there's a lot of these disciplines that are meant to do that. This might look like changing your schedule around, 
Justin Early has written a few books about finding these rhythms, rhythms in daily life. His most recent is called Habits of the Household. And he suggests this. It's, I, I like it because it uses alliteration. Scripture before screens. When you wake up in the morning, is the first thing you go to the Word of God? Is it prayer? Or is it checking our Instagram notifications or reading ESPN headlines? This metaphor of ingesting, right, where we are to consume Jesus as the living bread, but this metaphor of ingesting the Word of God is is part of the prophetic tradition. You have Ezekiel. God, in a vision, gives him a scroll to eat that was sweet to his lips. When they were told to chew on the Bible, it's, of course, not meant to be taken literally, but was done figuratively. They were to study it, meditate, savor it, center their lives around the special revelation of God. And so reading our, 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 our Bibles is one way that we can consume Jesus as the bread of life. You know, one of the rhythms that I have started more recently is I turn my smart speaker to uh, a worship, you know, worship song or a Christian band that I like while I load the dishwasher and do dishes in the sink. And what it's done is it's taken an activity that I dislike, I, you could almost say abhor, um, uh, it, it, uh, take this time that I abhor to a contemplative time where I can continue to immerse myself in the identity of Christ, that I can reorient my f- focus to him. I mean, it, it, and this isn't new. Brother Lawrence in the 16th century wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God, you know, where he found, finally found this, like, presence of God while he was doing dishes. I still hate him. You know, lately I've been trying to find songs to pair with these sermons, just another way uh, to, to, to engage our minds, uh, have these touchstones throughout the week and post them to Facebook. And two weeks ago, I picked a song called Wait Music by uh, an artist named KB. And one of the lyrics in the song speaks directly to this truth. I think this is beautiful, beautiful imagery. He says, my missions to the scripture, I feast on Christ and get so fat off God, I spoil sin's appetite. You were made for to see and savor the glory of your maker, right? To savor Christ in our lives who not only provides life, but it squeezes out that alluring temptation of sin, right? Jesus Christ is the bread of life. May we feast on him and find life. Craig, do you still have the iPad? I want to I turn our attention. So, you know, each week, trying to provide these reflection questions, and I really want to encourage you to take some time to, uh, to think through these, just to have that touch point. Because, you know, you walk out this door, and, you know, Steelers are playing probably at one, and are probably going to lose to Buffalo, and I've forgotten all about what I've even said myself. And so, you know, Monday morning, I post those on Facebook. I do need to find another way to get them so those that aren't on Facebook can, can have it. Um, but it's just another way for us to think, okay, reorienting. Instead of thinking about my schedule, instead of thinking about what I'm cooking for dinner, all right, what is it, God, that you're calling me to? Maybe taking one question a day through the week. But here, here we go. So the first one is this. Has Jesus called you to something that you feel is too difficult and you've considered turning away? How did you reconcile those feelings? Right, because that's what we see later in, in John chapter 6. The crowds are like, dude, this is too much. I, I, I'm not all about being in this cannibalistic ritual. I'm walking away. What has Jesus called you to that's so hard that you're like, I don't know if I can stick around? Read that. Keep reading because Peter's, Peter's words to him are beautiful. Right? Where else are we going to go? All right, so how do you reconcile those feelings? Second, do you find yourself to be spiritually hungry? Do you acknowledge that hunger? 
and maybe inventory your life. How have you filled that void from other sources, right? Because, you know, I, I got, my mom got me for my birthday Elden Ring, which is like this great game uh, for consoles, and it's, it, it would be nothing for me to drop two hours in that, in a setting. It would be a lot for me to drop two hours in a setting in the scriptures, right? So what are you filling that void with other sources of entertainment? Let's go to the last one. What is one rhythm you can change in your schedule? This is like the scripture before screens, if you will. What's one rhythm that you can change so that you can provide more opportunities to feast on Christ throughout the day? Where can we be flexible to create space, not only for that hunger, but to have it satisfied in Christ? Join me in prayer. Lord, we lift your name on high, acknowledging you as the bread of heaven. As God, the God in the flesh incarnate, come to move in the neighborhood with us to bring salvation for us, offering yourself on the cross so that we who eat of you, who consume you, who feast on you might experience that life. Lord, may we experience that life not just as some, you know, distant reality, just some distant uh, uh, ethereal kingdom, but God, may we experience that life in the fullness thereof here and now. Lord, guide us in your truths, pointing to us the places where we can find these rhythms to find you more in life. In Jesus' name, amen.